This is one of those stories I tell sometimes. Think of it as a midrash, uh, an imagination, just to be clear. The words stung. They were meant to. They were meant to leave a mark, and they did. Isabel had been firm and unyielding and disinterested in yet another set of excuses from Mark. Mark maybe was her son or her coworker or her boyfriend. One of those, this is not one of those stories where we're going to worry about the details. Mark was one of those. And Isabel had been tough with Mark. And he was frustrated. And he meant to make it known. So he said it loud, why don't you have more compassion? And it stung. Isabel took a step back, literally moved back, as if she had been buffeted by a blast of wind. She'd always thought of herself as a pretty compassionate person. So when Mark accused her of lacking compassion, it went right at her sense of identity. She steadied herself. She took a breath. She felt her heart racing. Look, she said, I do have compassion for you, but I can't do what you want. It would go against what I believe in, she said, so I can't. Or maybe she said, I just don't have the time. Or she said, I can't afford it. Or she said, I've already made a promise about that day and I can't change my plans. Or she said, I'm so bored of your complaints, just be quiet. Or she said, I think you're lying to me and I won't be a sucker anymore. Or she said, I can't stop using drugs for you, only you can do that for yourself. Or something along those lines. I bet each of those things sounded different to you, didn't they? Some of them made us feel sympathy for Isabel, empathetic even that we've been there, we've had to say those things, perhaps. Others of those statements maybe made us feel less sympathetic. Like, we thought she could be more compassionate, and Mark is right. What she says there might change how we feel about her, but what's important about this story is how Isabel felt. She wondered afterward if Mark was right. Am I as compassionate as I think I am? Being compassionate is a value for me, she thought, but how am I doing? Not just with Mark, but with everyone that I meet. Am I moving through the world with the kind of love and kindness that I want to? She started noticing noticing her reactions, how she held her face, the words she said, how she looked at other people, clerks in the store, sales reps on the phone, her family, her friends, strangers on the street, other drivers on the road. She would try to say, let me hold them in compassion. And you know, just noticing, it changed things a little. She would say an extra kind word to someone. She made sure to say things like please and thank you, those 
little bits of social grease that make the day better for everybody. But on a deeper level, she wondered, should her compassion be more radical? Should it be more than politeness, become something more spiritual? And if that's what she wanted to do, how would she go about that? So she read about it, books and essays and so forth. She read poetry about it. She watched TED Talks. She even joined a compassion practice group. It met about once a month, and they would talk about compassion, both in the abstract and then in real life. How did they show it? What were the challenges? They would encourage each other to be compassionate, and they worked in social service agencies and volunteered their time and did things during the day. The group was good. It was really good. One of the things that came up over and over again in the group that really resonated in Isabel's experience was that compassion was hardest when you weren't sure what compassion called for or when compassion for one person conflicted with compassion for another or when compassion and your own need for security and integrity and safety would come into conflict. Should I give away everything I own? Some of the scriptures say so. What about my child? How will they be okay if I do that? Should I invite strangers into my life more often? What if something goes badly? Not everyone is trustworthy. What consequences am I willing to risk and which am I not willing to risk? And one of the sticky questions they discussed often, what's the line between compassion and enabling? Does compassion run every which way? Or is it always a one-way street, always one person giving and one person taking? And is that okay? Does that matter? They talked about this in the group. Everyone struggled with it. One of the things she really liked about the group was, of course, how they treated each other in it. Everyone was so nice. One of the nicest group of people she'd ever met. No surprise. They did all the things. They held open the door and they made space in the conversation. They listened with heart without moving to advice unless asked for. They noticed how folks were doing and showing up in their affect, in their expression. They were nice to folks who were new and they didn't judge you if you missed a meeting here and there. It was lovely. Let us love friends. And they did. It was a picture of what it might look like if compassion was more frequent and more widely shared. It wasn't a one-way thing where one person cared for all of them on a regular basis, but everyone in the group was compassionate almost all the time to everyone else. And when someone wasn't, the example of the others helped pull them back into covenant. Isabel noticed how important this was, how the norms of compassion really set the tone for how people acted. She could tell when she went somewhere, a school, a doctor's office, a store, some Facebook groups but not others. Was this a place of compassion where everyone was kind with each other? Or was this a place of aggression, of competition, of frazzled tempers? Isabel thought about this a lot, about norms and expectations. Do we expect compassion, and do we act with it in our congregation, in our school, in our city, in our nation? 
Or have we just given up on that sense of community that it's all nasty, brutish, and short, and there's no other way? We become what we expect. Let us love, and we will or we will not. If you think compassion and decency are quaint virtues, if we think they are qualities of the weak and naive, if we discount such things as irrelevant, then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Isabel worries that we've reached a tipping point as a nation when compassion has become so devalued that getting it back might be really hard. But in other circles, in her compassion practice group and in certain other spaces she goes, it feels like compassion for everyone is still alive and well. She notices. But she wants more. She wants to go deeper into this question. She still thinks every once in a while about Mark's comment and wonders, how can compassion be more real in me and in the world? So she saves up quite a bit of money and some vacation time, and she books a plane ticket, flies, gets off the plane in Paris, finds her way to the train station through wine country and rolling hills and small villages. She takes a cab from the depot to the monastery, Plum Village, where the Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh has lived and taught since the 1970s, where during the Vietnam War he was exiled from his home country. She had registered in advance. She didn't just, didn't just go. Okay? Let me be clear, don't just go. You gotta sign up. She, but she checked in when she got there and she noticed right away as she walked around the way that compassion and loving kindness was just embodied into the place. Everyone was kind and generous. There was no rush. Nobody cut in line for the food, which was served with love. And she signed up for her shift to help make and clean up the meals. She went to the Dharma talk. This story which I am telling you, which is unmoored from such notions as a timeline, a place and time, nonetheless, let us say that this story takes place some years ago, when Tui, Thich Nhat Hanh, as he is known, Tui was still regularly teaching at Plum Village. And he began that day to talk about compassion. So much of what he said resonated with Isabel. He talked about what it meant to have compassion for other people. He invited folks into a meditation to imagine someone who needs compassion. And this was easy for Isabel to do. She thought, of an old man she'd seen on the train labored in his breathing and sent him compassion in her heart. She thought too of a young family and a wailing child and she sent compassion to that child and to their parents. When Tui talked about how meditation on compassion about these people would make us act with compassion, Isabel nodded. That was her experience too. When she had been filled with compassion, she had moved to service and action. She knew this to be true. And when Tui then talked about having compassion for people you find difficult, Isabel thought of one of her coworkers who just rubbed her the wrong way. They weren't mean, they just they didn't click. They cared about different things. But Isabel could hold that coworker with compassion. It wasn't, it wasn't hard. You don't have to be friends to have compassion. 
And it won't always make you friends with somebody, but it'll make us have better experiences in the day. But then until we started talking about having compassion for folks who hurt us, who act out of their own pain, and Isabel started with agreement, yes, having compassion for people who are hard to love, understanding where they're coming from, this is good, this is good, but then Mark popped into her head. And as Tui invited them to meditation, she went all the way back to the beginning and all the way to Mark's demand, you need to have more compassion. It didn't feel like a request for connection. It felt like manipulation, like a threat. She fidgeted. She started getting warm and quietly so as not to disturb the hundreds of other students she slipped out of the hall and went outside. She paced. Compassion is lovely, she thought, but aren't there limits? Compassion can't be something that I just give and give and give and others just take and take and take. She paced. The class let out. She watched the people go serene as they appeared to be, and her frustrations with herself and the world and this notion arose. Don't they struggle like I do, she thought. She paced. And then, in the way these stories go, then a small Vietnamese monk sidled up next to her. Hello, my friend, Tui said, and Isabel just about fainted. <laughs> Hello, she was finally able to say. I didn't mean to surprise you, he said. But I noticed that you had to leave in that moment. And I wondered what was troubling your heart. Perhaps we can walk a little and you can tell me. And Isabel fought the temptation to say, it's nothing. She had been practicing compassion for some time now. And she knew that if someone asked you what was on your heart, that it was okay to say so. So she said, having compassion for someone who hurt me is hard. It feels like if I do that, then I'll just get taken advantage of. It feels to me, Isabel said, that that kind of compassion you're talking about involves me putting down my boundaries, and that doesn't always feel safe. And she said, you live here in this beautiful monastery, and everyone here is compassionate to everyone else, but the country I live in, not everyone is nice. And I'm a woman, and when I speak up for myself, Isabel said, when I set boundaries, men say, you're not very nice, or worse. And it feels to me in that context, in that context which is not your context, that compassion can be weaponized by those who wish to do to us whatever they want. Instead of being this beautiful thing where we see each other's pain and longing and love and show loving kindness instead of that, it feels like, feels like a hook in my jaw and I'm a fish on the line. And Isabel stopped there, wondered if she had said too much. And Tui smiled and said, oh yes, you are not the first to wonder this. You are not alone in wondering this. And he said, how could anyone ever tell you 
you are anything less than worthy. And after they walked for a bit, Tui asked, in your years of studying and practicing compassion, what have you noticed? Isabel felt silly telling this great teacher of compassion what she had learned about compassion, but he prodded, no, tell me what you've noticed. So eventually she said, I've learned that compassion is first of all about noticing. Notice the people around you. Notice their faces, their affect, their words. Notice how they respond. Compassion, she said, is first about noticing. And she said, I've also noticed that compassion does make the world more beautiful when it is shared. When a group is compassionate, it's slower and more attentive, more kind. There are group norms that keep it compassionate. Compassion, she said, is stronger when it's shared. And she said, I've noticed that compassion involves real curiosity. Like when you asked me a moment ago, what is on your heart? I felt your curiosity, not gossip, but genuine interest in me and what I cared about. That felt like compassion. It felt genuine. It was real. And Tui breathed in and out. And Isabel breathed in and out. And he said, aha. Compassion is noticing the other person and, and noticing yourself. Can we add that too? Okay. And compassion is stronger when it is something that we all do. Yeah. And compassion is about being real and genuine and curious. Right? Hmm. Do you, do you think it is possible to notice other people to seek out mutuality and compassion and to be genuine? Do you think it's possible to do all those things without saying yes to every request that comes to you? To do those things, to notice other people and to care about them, to be real, do you have to be a doormat or a punching bag? Is that required? Hmm. Maybe, too, he said, maybe compassion is saying, I notice you. I wish you well. And then the only way I can be genuine is to say, though I care for you, I cannot do what you wish. For it is not compassionate to me, to the world, or to you for me to do so. You see, he said, in Buddhism, there is no separate self. Not really. We're all connected. So if you do something that violates your heart, that doesn't just hurt you. That hurts me. It hurts everyone's heart. So compassion for the other is to care for yourself too. And Isabel breathed in, and she breathed out. Let us love.
Now they kept talking. They walked and they talked. They talked more about the illusion of self and about imperfection. They talked about meditation a lot. And they talked about forgiveness. Eventually, a few other students walked along with them. And then after Tui went to rest, the students kept talking about what they had learned and what they were struggling with. And they talked slowly. They noticed each other and how these things feel in the body. They supported each other. They were real, too. There was no false talk, no bragging about, oh, I'm more compassionate than you are. None of that. Some of those conversations are stories for another day, sermons for another Sunday. This story has gone on long enough as it is. And, and it doesn't have a neat and tidy ending. It doesn't. Isabel went home. She kept trying. Some days are easier than others. When folks demanded on her, when they tried to take advantage, she would try to say, I notice you. I will treat you with respect, but please treat me with respect too. And she would say, what is really going on with your heart right now? What's going on with your heart right now? And sometimes she'd ask that question and those conversations wouldn't go anywhere. And she'd just walk away. It wasn't compassionate for anyone to stay in that conversation anymore. But other times she would ask that question and a door would open. And beyond it, there was something better, something deeper and more real, something that felt like love. That's what there is, after all. That's all there is trying to let compassion and love be our guide and let the rest, all the rest, fall away. I invite you to rise in body or spirit. We'll sing together. Love will guide us.